2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm honored to be joined by Laura Pascas, author of At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate, published by University of New Mexico Press. Laura is an environmental journalist and a correspondent whose work has been widely published by New Mexico Public Broadcasting, High Country News, and New Mexico in focus among others. Laura Paskus, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Brady.
2: Well, thank you for being here. Um, full disclosure, uh, as I've mentioned to you, I have lived in New Mexico, plan to return to New Mexico in the near future. Um, I love New Mexico, uh, warts and all, in a deep way. Um, so I am deeply invested in the climate future of the New Mexico uh, world. So. Um, Since your book is about uh, climate change in New Mexico, I feel like I should put those cards on the table. Uh, I am an invested interest in this conversation um, and the outcome. Um, So if you could, um, would you tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in this topic?
1: Sure. So I've been a reporter since, um, well, for almost 20 years now, I started my career at High Country News. Um, and I've worked in print, online, radio, and now I work in public television. Um, but before I worked as a journalist, I, I worked throughout New Mexico in the Southwestern United States as an archeologist and a tribal consultant. And I think, um, I didn't grow up here. I grew up in Connecticut, went to school in Virginia and came out here in my early 20s. And I think working on the landscape and with communities um, really affected me in a, a really um, deep and unexpected way that has definitely um, informed my journalism and it informed my commitment to, to loving this place.
2: Great. Thank you. Thank um, you. Yes, uh, some of the, my favorite parts of the book are when you compare sort of your experience growing up in Connecticut um, with your experience as an adult in uh, New Mexico and the Southwest, because those comparisons are uh, rarely made, <laughs> at least between those two specific uh, places. <laughs> um, so, so the book is called At the Precipice. Um, so could you describe what the climate precipice actually looks like um, for New Mexico and the Southwest?
1: So as lots of your listeners probably understand, for an arid place like New Mexico, warming, as temperatures rise, this warming also means drying. And so for an already arid place like New Mexico in the U.S. Southwest, this warming increases our water insecurity. We see things like increased evaporation increased transpiration. You know, our forests and our croplands all demand more water the warmer it is, but we also um, have less and less water all the time as part of our 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 hydrological cycle. And so as we see things drying out like forests, we also see increased wildfire danger, bigger wildfires, more severe wildfires. And, you know, there's lots of compounding factors um, Part of the problem with our forests has to do with things like fire a century of fire suppression and fuels buildup and a logging industry that removed the biggest, most resilient trees from the forests. But um, you know, the the big thing for me for New Mexico really has to do with our water challenges. Um it's a it's a hard place already to have a big city or a farm or um you know, kind of a, a reliable and sustainable water source and climate change just makes that even harder.
2: Right. I, I don't think um, folks outside of New Mexico truly appreciate that much. most of the population um, is located between Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Um, obviously, there are other smaller cities like Las Cruces. Um, there's a huge indigenous population in many indigenous nations. Um, but for a, a state that is... Uh, smaller than most on a population perspective or from a population perspective. Um, yeah, uh, even with a small population, uh, climate change <laughs> has some deep impacts. Um, so c- could you, I, you describe in the book that um, climate change in the Southwest is is all about water, um, and you cite all sorts of um, experts, you know, you obviously are an expert in your own right, um, but why, why is climate change... Um, Despite all of the ways it manifests in the Southwest, why, why is it all about water?
1: So for people who live in New Mexico, I mean, I think you, you bring up a really great point. The vast majority of the population is centered along kind of the the middle of the state where the Rio Grande flows. Um, and that is our largest river Um the cities of Santa Fe and Albuquerque and Rio Rancho and Las Lunas and Berlin, all the way down to Las Cruces, rely on the waters of the Rio Grande. You know those those supplies are supplemented in part by groundwater pumping. But if you look, for example, to the river this summer, and we've seen drying happen on the Rio Grande for about two decades now fairly regularly in the summertime but this year for example we had a not terrible winter snowpack and yet we saw low flows on the Rio Grande throughout the spring and now the summer. I live about a mile from the river and I try to ride my bike there at lunchtime and I look down and again this for, for people in Florida, you probably can't even imagine this, but, you know, this is our, our biggest river in the entire state. And right now, near my house, it's flowing at probably 60 cubic feet per second, which, if you think about how we've set up our entire water supply system in the state, to see flows that low in the Rio Grande is should be terrifying for people, should really be snapping people to attention that we have created some systems that are completely unsustainable for the 21st century and beyond, not just for the ecosystem, but for cities and farms. And so right now, for example, the largest reservoir in the state, which is on the Rio Grande Elephant Butte Reservoir, didn't check the numbers the past few days, but it's about four or five percent full, which is remarkable. What what you maybe are hearing happening on the Colorado River right now, as there've been shortage declarations and and a crisis building on the Colorado River, Lake Mead is at about thirty five percent capacity and is triggering these emergencies. And yet here in New Mexico, our biggest reservoir is at or 5% capacity, and, and we're still operating as though everything is okay.
2: Right. And I, I think to some extent, looking at the Rio Grande can be sort of uh, deceptive um, or looking at sort of acequia water um, because, right, there there is some level of water conservation. The Rio Grande is the biggest. Um, often when I talk to folks in New Mexico about um, water issues, I would actually point to something like the Santa Fe River which, if if you've been uh, in Santa Fe, <laughs> is often not running at all, um, and and I think that to me sometimes points out the dire situation um, more than the Rio Grande, which which sometimes you know it, it can seem low, but okay, it's a river, it ebbs and flows. Um, but when you see a river uh, that is named um, and there is literally no water, I, I think it can sometimes make the point uh, more clearly. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a comment, not a question so much. <laughs> uh, but, I, you know, I was in Albuquerque this summer living uh, probably half a mile from uh, the Rio Grande. Uh, saw it every day and, and saw it raging. And, and yet I had to press pause myself and say, well, what, what is actually happening? What am I seeing? What does this mean for the snowpack? What does this mean for other rivers in the States, right? Because there are lots of people who don't rely um, on the Rio Grande right there. There are people <laughs> who do live outside of sort of the Rio Grande uh, range, so. Um, okay, so, so I think that was a helpful explanation about water. Um, uh, again, I, uh, going to a, a different issue, but, but related. Um, I, I think if you don't live in or haven't spent much time in New Mexico, um, it may not be obvious uh, that the state is a leader in oil and gas extraction and production. Um, So, I guess, could you talk about the role that the oil and gas industry plays in New Mexico broadly, and then more specifically, what role that industry plays in the state's climate response?
1: Sure, that's a great question. So, New Mexico is heavily reliant on the oil and gas industry, and we have two main basins, the San Juan Basin, which is largely natural gas up in the northwestern part of the state, like around the Navajo Nation. And then the Permian Basin down in the southeastern part of the state is um, is a huge oil play, and I think the current numbers we have something around fifty five thousand oil and gas wells in the state, and these these cause a lot of environmental impacts, whether that's contamination of groundwater, contributions of air pollution, um, things like ozone. Um, There are certainly labor issues um, and land use issues. But, you know, for the state of New Mexico, it's also a huge chunk of our operating budget relies on revenue from the oil and gas industry. And so New Mexico, it feels to me very much like New Mexico is trapped in this, really confusing place where we see the impacts of climate change on a daily basis we see how the agricultural industry is being harmed and threatened by this increasing aridity and dryness and you know we see all these other impacts whether it's forest fires or public health impacts from the spread of things like valley fever Um, increasingly desiccated rangelands. Like we see all of these impacts, which are directly the result of warming that is directly the result of human-caused climate change. And so we see all these impacts of climate change, and yet as a state, we're directly contributing to the problem by allowing the oil and gas industry to operate the way in which it does and continuing to not really commit to diversifying our economy. And so there are definitely really interesting things happening in the state right now, conversations about diversification of the economy in particular, a big, you know, discussion these days has to do with the legalization of recreational marijuana. Um, And the film industry is a part of that diversification and some other things. But We're still kind of moving ahead in encouraging new oil and gas development, even though there's some new implementation of rules regarding um, trying to limit methane emissions and kind of tighten up the industry a little bit. But these rules are either brand new or in the development stage, and it'll be years and years before they're implemented. So... You know, I think other states that are in similar positions would maybe be like Louisiana heavily dependent on the oil and gas industry, even as the the kind of fallout of climate change is utterly destroying their um, their their ecosystems, their communities, their economy. And so I think it's like it's like this very, Real problem that humans have to deal with, where we have to decide if we're actually going to do something about climate change. It is going to make, it is going to mean some large scale changes and decisions, but they're never going to get any easier than they are today. So, uh,
2: speaking of transition, um, so f- from your vast reporting, like how do you think New Mexico can? transition to renewable energy sources. Um, I, I think some people think that New Mexico uh, is a right place for solar, for example, <laughs> to take over, but also wind, geothermal. Um, so from your reporting, like what, what could that transition look like and how feasible is that transition, given um, sort of that oil and gas revenue makes up, I think you say 15 to 25% of the state's general fund?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that we see happening now, is uh, there are wind farms, there is, in the works right now, in the planning stages still, the Sun Zia transmission line, which I believe would be the largest clean energy infrastructure project in the country at this point, um, which would be moving wind energy from eastern New Mexico to markets in Arizona and California, and these things are interesting and exciting. And I I try not to be like such a grouch about everything, but truly I think I am just a grouch. One of the things that I think we see happen is we're like, okay, the oil and gas isn't like oil and gas isn't what we should be doing or big coal-fired power plants aren't what should we we should be doing. And so what's the next big industry that, that we can start relying on that we can pour capital into that people can uh, make profits off of. Um, And so we can maybe think about shifting from fossil fuels to renewable energy, but it's always these big renewable energy projects. It it feels to me like the more sustainable thing to do for the future is to be investing in things like community solar and community energy projects where you're not reliant on yet another monopoly you know here in new mexico we've had pnm which is the the main utility in the state and they're going through a, a process right now of potentially selling to a different company but you know, we have these big monopolies that operate in ways that aren't always beneficial to communities or future generations. And so I worry that we're just going to trade one big monopoly, one big industry for another. And and yet it feels to me like there's so many opportunities at this moment in time, when we know we need to make changes, people are hungry for changes. And people are certainly talking about change in a way that I've never experienced in my lifetime. And so I think there are, there are all these opportunities that I would love to see New Mexico grab onto instead of kind of doing things the same way that we've always done, but with a, just a, a different group of shareholders. Right,
2: yeah, There's there are all sorts of large scale um, renewable projects and, and I think you're right to ask questions if, if you're replacing one monopoly for another um, you know are, are you are you still bringing some of some parts of our energy system uh, that perhaps we should rethink um, all right so New Mexico um, as you know is is home to many indigenous nations um, Acoma, Santa Clara Sandia tosuke you know to name just a few <laughs> um, so it, it from your reporting, in what ways are these sovereign indigenous nations um, experiencing climate change uh, differently than sort of the state as a whole, right? I think people just presume, right, that these nations are just part of New Mexico and the impacts will be quite similar. Um, but I think from your reporting, from other um, other books that I've read, uh, that's, that's not necessarily the case.
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. Thank you for asking about that, because I think our tribal nations are, you know, the thing that makes New Mexico most interesting in so many ways. And so in terms of climate change, like just a few examples for how different tribes are, are experiencing the impacts of climate change. For example, the Pueblo of Acoma, which, you know, has the oldest continuously inhabited village in the United States, I think. Um, has been continuously inhabited since 1150 AD, I believe. Um, you know, these are these are people who have gone through so many changes, climatic changes. They've gone through the the you know devastation wrought by the Spanish, Mexican, and the United States governments. They've seen just un, unfathomable changes and. The in, the most interesting thing to me is talking to friends of mine who live at Acoma. There's there's no sense of like for somebody like me who grew up in a different state and moved here. I could I could leave at any time, right? I could be like, oh, it's just it's too hot, it's getting too dry, it's too hard to think about how to live here. I can just move someplace else, and there isn't that sense among many of the Pueblos in particular and in the Pueblo of Acoma that you were given this land by the creator. And as part of that gift from the creator to the people, you made a certain commitment to stewardship. And so no matter how hard it gets to farm or to find springs or, to have a wet enough winter to have a reliable garden. These people have a connection to the landscape that is, is like unbreakable. You don't move on. You don't leave. You figure out a way to adapt. And I think that I've learned so much from those friends um, who really, the commitment to the landscape is, is not even something you think about because it's such a part of you. So
2: a related question, um, I, I'm wondering, uh, you wrote a bit about the Galisteo Basin and corn farmers uh, in the 1190s, and I, I'm wondering um, how you think about the adaptations those corn farmers made and where they sort of resettled and how they farmed, and you know, how you think about potential resettlement for folks in New Mexico or maybe even the Southwest more broadly um I recognize that some peoples uh, especially various indigenous peoples in New Mexico they have bonds to specific land in ways that not everybody does certainly settlers uh, do not uh, but I, I guess what 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 did we, what are you thinking about that as somebody who's not originally from New Mexico but obviously you have a strong tie to the place like what what can we learn from past adaptations and uh, is potential resettlement? Uh, necessarily on the table for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a, a hard thing to think about, right? Whether we're talking about desert communities or coastal communities and I think the conversations happening these days around managed retreat and and equity and environmental justice are really important and I don't think we're there yet in New Mexico. There's still there's You know, there's always, and when I, when I talk about, when I say like always, I mean in this sort of like settler colonial times, there've been these, this clash between urban and rural communities where rural communities have very real fears about their water being taken by cities or rural communities feel as though they're taken advantage of because that's where resource extraction happens and yet wealth is spread to other places. And so there's so often in New Mexico over the last at least century, this sort of urban rural divide. And now we're looking at something even even more serious in that, you know, a city like Albuquerque or a city like Santa Fe, they're not going to run out of water right? They've diversified their water portfolios. It's where wealth is concentrated. Um, you're, not, you're not going to turn your cap on in Santa Fe or Albuquerque and, and not have water come out. But for rural communities, especially those that rely upon groundwater pumping, like these communities are starting to run out of water or facing water challenges. And if you look at it in terms of like just the, the economics of it, do you spend millions of dollars to fix a, a groundwater supply for you know what essentially in some places could be a few dozen families or do you invest in in cities where it's more like economical where you have more people living closer together and so these are things that I think linger in people's minds, but we're not having serious conversations. I don't think we even know how to have serious conversations yet about what to do in the coming decades um, with some of these smaller communities um, that, that quite simply, it doesn't feel like they can survive the way that they're living right now. And so that's, that's a really scary and complicated conversation.
0: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples because this isn't just any vacation this is all the vacations come seek the Royal Caribbean Ships Registry Bahamas
2: at Evernorth Health Services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI it's possible we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder
1: look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why
0: they're introducing an all-new bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
2: Absolutely. Um, Living in Santa Fe, I I was always amazed at how uh, low the price was uh, per month for the water (laughs) that I was using. Uh, And and part of me thought that I should be charged more given the scarcity. Uh, But I, I certainly appreciate your point that um sort of the wealthier areas and santa fe is certainly as wealthy as it comes in new mexico Um, you know you have the resources to secure water uh, in a way and you have the infrastructure um, to actually continue um, in a way that more rural communities do not Um, and the environmental justice issues just you know they don't get any more sort of elemental than uh, fights over water and as you know water in the west is (laughs) it is perhaps the conversation other than um i would say the indigenous and colonial settler conversation Um, so um related uh to this general topic um so you interviewed multiple people uh who referred to new mexico um and some of the indigenous nations i think of uh navajo nation or the you know dene um And they they refer to these places, these, you know, the state, but also these nations as uh, sacrifice zones. Um, I'm wondering um, how you interpreted sort of references to sacrifice zones and and what does it mean, uh, you know, from your reporting uh, to assert that New Mexico and areas like the Four Corners are sacrifice zones for the United States?
1: Yeah, I think it's been really easy for people to just you know, we outsource our our energy needs to other communities. Like for example, on the the Eastern Navajo Nation, there's a there's a lot of oil and gas development there, and in some cases, these um, these wells and their associated infrastructure and, and waste ponds are you know right up against you know just just Uh, you know 50 100 feet away from somebody's home or somebody's hogan or lybrook elementary school for example um and we kind of have these areas where we as americans seem to feel okay with our energy choices because the vast majority of us are not suffering from the consequences of being right next to them and so we can feel totally comfortable using fossil fuels the way that we do because most of us don't see the impacts We're comfortable with them being you know in these in these areas where not very many people live and where we just don't have to see the public health impacts or the environmental impacts of our energy choices and the four corners has been that for a really long time. You know, the U S government sort of relegated the Navajo people to this area that they considered, you know, kind of like useless. There wasn't much water, there weren't big forests. It wasn't like an attractive area to, you know, sort of federal capitalists. And so, you know, put, put the navajo people out there and then oh gosh you know as as time goes on realize there's coal there there's uranium there there's natural gas there and and want those resources and and really sort of take them and exploit them without any care for the future of the communities or the environment and i think that that's been common in many places across New Mexico whether we're talking about uranium mining in western New Mexico or oil and gas development and and I'm always I'm always confused when I go down to the Permian the New Mexico side of the Permian basin in southeastern New Mexico that is an area that has has changed so much in the 20 something years that I've lived here you're never not aware of being in an industrialized zone there. Even if you can't see an uh, oil and gas well from where you're standing, you can see the haze in the sky always. Um, and and it's, you know, I don't think other people in other states recognize the sacrifices that they demand of states like New Mexico or say Louisiana or Oklahoma or these different states that have Wyoming that have really industrialized these otherwise rural landscapes. And I think as long as we don't really understand where our energy comes from as Americans, we're going to keep being comfortable with that. And it's really exciting. I think, to see how people are starting to stand up to this more and more in their communities and work with other people in other communities who are going through the same thing, whether that was Standing Rock or um, sort of the pipeline battles we see now where local communities are saying, like, we don't want to be your sacrifice's own anymore. <laughs> we need to make transitions for lots of different reasons, and you have to see us. You have to see what we're experiencing.
2: Sure. I would, I would just add... Um, Well, today is September 16th, and uh, there is still a battle over Line 3 in northern Minnesota. Um, So yes, I I think you were right to point out that the resistance um, is strong, especially led by indigenous folks. Um, But (laughs) you were also right to point out that I I think uh, the broader public does not realize where their uh, energy is produced, extracted. uh, But also, you know, again, when you Think about the West, uh, the Southwest, the Colorado River, um, and all the diversions of water to your Phoenixes, Las Vegas, Los Angeles. Um, It's just, uh, it's not fully appreciated how I think abundant the resources are in some parts of the country and how those resources really are diverted to people in other parts of the country or, you know, in some cases, other parts of the world. Um, and not, you know, those, those benefits uh, don't redound to the people who actually <laughs> have to deal with the issues presented by the industrialization of, you know, Southeast uh, New Mexico, for example, in the Permian Basin area. So um, I think this sort of leads me to um, a theme uh, throughout the book and, and a question. Um, there's, there's a number of references to sort of climate grief, I guess is how I would describe it. Um so what what is climate grief, and how do you personally uh, wrestle with climate grief um, as you bear witness to climate change um, in New Mexico and the Southwest?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's like it's maybe a little bit different for me as an environment reporter than other people. Um, my climate grief is also wrapped up in a lot of guilt where I think like, I'm like understanding what's happening in New Mexico, talking to scientists or, you know, whatever, and and feeling really sad and seeing places that I love, seeing them change sometimes rapidly and sometimes slowly. And, and then I write about this stuff and put it out there and I feel guilty that I'm just making other people feel sad. Or um, I always hope that by telling these stories about climate change that, that I'm not making people feel such despair that they start feeling disinterested or like they shouldn't care or shouldn't try or um, that you can't do anything about climate change. So for me, like grief and guilt sometimes get wrapped up together. But I think I i feel like I've been in New Mexico long enough now. And now thanks to the pandemic, I have not left New Mexico since like a month before the pandemic. So I feel like I'm becoming like really <laughs> isolated from the outside world in some ways. Um, but I feel like in New Mexico, people really are so connected to the landscapes around us like in ways that I certainly never felt when I lived in Connecticut or Virginia. You know, if you're familiar with, with Albuquerque, you know, the Sandia mountains are on the East side of the city and that's how you always know where you are. And so it could be something as small as, as that, as just knowing like having your, having your directions always defined by the mountains to paying attention to you know, a lot of people might not pay attention to the the winter migration of birds, but here we have sandhill cranes that come in the fall and leave in the spring, and they're such an obvious presence that you can't help but be attuned to <coughs> that cycle. Um, and so I think, like, people in New Mexico really understand what's happening and see the changes, and I think that it it is really hard to have dry year after dry year even if you're not a farmer or it's really hard to have your sky smoky um for months and months on end even if the fires are in california and not here and so i think that people are really feeling like even people who might not consider themselves like environmentalists or outdoorsy or particularly connected to their landscapes and seasons like people are feeling the the press of of change and of climate change. And I think people deal with it in different ways. And I'm constantly encouraged by the people I encounter, whether it's scientists who just feel driven to understand more about what's happening or indigenous activists who are really leading the way on particular movements in the state and in the West, um, to people of faith who maybe talk about climate change with some of their more conservative churchgoers. And so even though I find climate change really overwhelming and struggle with some of that grief myself, I also feel like pretty excited about the opportunities that we have in New Mexico to take better care of one another and the landscapes. And so I'm never quite sure if it's like this delusional optimism that I struggle with sometimes, or if it's real, but I like to think that maybe it doesn't even matter if it's delusional or real, as long as you're like feeling hopeful and optimistic, you find better ways to try to move forward.
2: Sure. Yeah. I I would just echo that. I think New Mexico, um, I think largely because of the various indigenous nations. Um, There are people who I think are rightfully described as land-based people. And when you say something like that, right, use a term like that, it's like, well, aren't all people land-based people? But uh, especially because of the history of sort of colonial settlement in this country, immigration, um, you know, not everybody feels connected to specific places, specific land, ancestral land, um, but when you when you go to places like New Mexico and indigenous nations in the Southwest where people were impacted in a different way um, than say folks who were moved um, to Indian country, uh, which is now called you know Oklahoma, uh, but were sort of forced off their ancestral land, uh, you don't have that sort of dynamic in play as much in New Mexico right so you can say that the Akama have uh, a connection to that specific land for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, in a way that you can't really say in other parts of the country. And I, I think that is a really unique and important thing to honor and recognize. So, um, so in your answer, um, I, I think, and sort of in the direction I've sort of taken uh, some of these questions, <laughs> um, I, th- I think there's sort of a recognition that you're a journalist, you do deep research. You talk to experts, certainly all over New Mexico and um, the world. Um, but you, you are also somebody who has sort of written um, in this book, especially uh, from sort of a more personal perspective. Um, you know, you are a character <laughs> uh, throughout this book. Right? It's not a novel, but you are definitely <laughs> uh, sort of the the character who threads through the book. Um, So it it comes across as sort of a personal reckoning with climate change, as much as sort of a deeply researched book. You know, you talk about life and death in your own family. Um, You talk about sort of species extinction. And you actually, I think, think about other species, which I I think to this day is still something that a lot of folks do not think about. Um, You obviously talk about other human beings, both in New Mexico and beyond. You talk about parenting and future generations um so I I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what your thought process was um when you decided to sort of incorporate um personal narratives into these sort of larger sort of journalistic narratives um because I I said this off air but I'll say it again on air I I I think interweaving the reporting and the research and your personal experience and reflection um really deepened the impact of this book and you know I I I thought of the Terry Tempest Williams of the world when I was reading this. I thought of Lorette Savoy. I thought of you know these folks who've really tried to not just talk about the science, not just talk about you know these sort of policy matters, but really about um, sort of what does it mean to be a human being living during these times with these changes.
1: Thank you for asking about that. I really appreciate that. I feel like when I first started working as a journalist, I was really mad that that journalists, especially in the mainstream, like it was totally normal to write about climate change and spend half the story quoting from a scientist who spent his or her entire career working on something and half the story quoting from some public relations, you know, funded by industry deceptive hack and, um, And it made me really mad. And I consistently got into some fights with pretty well-known environmental mainstream journalists. And and at the time, I was really green. And I was very self-conscious about being a a woman in a pretty male-dominated field. And these arguments really made me feel like I was a different type of journalist. I wasn't a serious journalist like these guys working at these well-established mainstream outlets. And I think I kind of went back and forth for a couple of years after those arguments, feeling like, should I try to be like these guys? Is that what you have to be to be a serious journalist that people will read and trust and, and, and believe in? Or can I can I do kind of what my heart is telling me to do, which is I have the privilege of being a reporter and I have the privilege of calling people up and they'll talk to me and explain things to me. And I have an obligation to the public to help them understand that there is this really scary, devastating thing happening that we should understand and plan for. And I really struggled like throughout Probably the at least the first ten years of my career, and by that point I was a single mom, and so I felt even more self-conscious. You know, having to bring a little kid along to public meetings or interviews with me, um, and like feeling you know everybody has the the things that make them feel self-conscious or like an imposter or like you don't belong. And for me, it was being a woman and a mother and a single mother in the field of environmental journalism. And I kind of seeing like the the sort of deepening crisis that we were approaching with climate change, I kind of made the decision that I would do anything to get the message across to people that the climate was changing and it was human caused and it was having these impacts. And so, you know, I've worked in... And print and online media, I've done radio and, and, you know, I kind of joke and say, I'll even do, I'll even go on TV and be on TV if that's what it takes to sort of reach new audiences. Um, and I think with the, the initial draft of this book was pretty straightforward, just, you know, kind of just the facts, no feelings, and it didn't feel right to me. And so I rewrote it. And kind of accepted that that some people will never read a book like this because it's about climate change, because it's written by a woman, like whatever, whatever reason you have for not wanting to read it. But if I wrote about what it was like to cover climate change and the struggle with grief and parenting and all of those things, that maybe a few more people would come along with me on this journey who might not have otherwise. And so I appreciate what you, what you said because that really means a lot to me because I felt like I was doing something maybe that I wasn't necessarily supposed to do.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I, I, you've probably seen this more than me, but even the scientists now are sort of talking about climate change in a more personal way and sort of less sciencey sort of way, um, I think in an attempt, right, to stress the seriousness, to really sort of highlight the stakes in a way that, you know, quote-unquote objective journalism or, you know, uh, science, you know, journals, nature, whatever, um, I, I think have struggled to do or chosen not to do, right? And I, I think you reach a point which you, you need to start reaching hearts because the minds that are gonna be sort of persuaded have been persuaded. Um, and this is clearly a, a bigger issue than science can deal with or policymakers can deal with. Um, you know, you highlight sort of various faith leaders in New Mexico who are trying to address these issues. You talk about, you know, Pope Francis and, and his role. Um, and and I, th- I think that is sort of the direction um, Anyone who is concerned with climate change or the climate emergency, the climate crisis, however you describe it, that's that's sort of the direction um, that I would argue we need to go. Because uh, as you document, you know, on a daily basis, uh, thing, things are not necessarily changing in, one, expected ways, but two, in necessarily helpful ways, um, whether it's water issues in New Mexico or wildfires throughout the West Um or sea level rise. You know, you've referenced Louisiana a bunch of times, and obviously, seeing uh, Hurricane Ida, and like, yeah, Hurricane Ida wasn't Katrina, but there are still some serious impacts that New Orleans is dealing with. Um, and you have to start connecting these dots in ways that I think your your journalism and this book does on on a really helpful level. Um, so, so you referenced parenting, obviously being a single mother and a dot, and you have a daughter at this point. Um, you know. I'm not sure if I've heard Lily in the background during this interview, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'm just wondering, you know, as as we start to wind down, um, like after all of this reporting, after all these experiences you've had, both as a reporter, but also as a reporter bringing uh, your daughter along with you <laughs> um, for many of these adventures, like h- how do you um, how do you talk about climate change and the impacts with um, your daughter um, as you sort of imagine the future of New Mexico broadly, but also, you know, it's it's possible that she will want to make a life in New Mexico. I hope so, for everybody's sake. <laughs> um, so, so how do you talk with her about these issues?
1: Yeah, I've been really honest with her since she was, you know, a baby. I think I started bringing her on reporting trips with me when she was just a couple months old and she was like in that little Bjorn um, like right right where I was holding my mic so I often go back to old interviews and I can hear her like gurgling in the background while someone's talking about like burrowing owl populations plummeting and so like this sort of heavy dialogue has always been a part of her consciousness And I think I've tried to offset that seriousness with, you know, we spend a lot of time hiking and camping and swimming and, and sort of engaging in joyful activities outside. And so climate change is happening and our forests are threatened and our reservoirs are dropping and all of that, but we can still go outside and have like a really fun, special time. And so I think balancing joy and knowledge has been really key. And you know it's kind of funny she's 15 now and when she was in middle school she definitely sort of went through this phase of like she didn't want anything to do with anything I was doing Um, anything related to the environment or writing or like that was just boring and annoying and I see her now as a sophomore in high school and she's the editor of the school newspaper. She's working on a podcast. She's, you know, her friends are these bright, intelligent, supportive, loving, engaged young women. And they're looking at the communities around them and the environment around them and and thinking about how they can contribute and make things better. And I think so much of where I find hope and excitement is really in these young people who have known about climate change their entire lives and have known that their futures are imperiled in some ways and yet they they carry on and they they engage in joyful activities and they have exciting ideas about how to survive and thrive in this world and so i feel really grateful There were definitely times as a single mother that I was like, ah, but I feel so grateful that I had this companion along the way who, who it would have been so unkind of me to ever be like really negative. And so I'm I'm thankful for her presence and that she kept me from, from ever um, really truly giving into any kind of despair.
2: Yes, well, children are often helpful uh, with those those kinds of things. You know, hard to despair when your child uh, relies on you to continue living, right? right. <laughs> um, okay, well, I, I can think of no better place to end this interview uh, than by asking you, if you would, uh, to read the last three paragraphs of uh, the chapter called "Morning a Mountain. Um Mm-hmm. This section really hit me uh, and resonated with me for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I really encourage folks to read uh, the book and read this chapter because there's there's a lot more than will come out in these three paragraphs. But um, I, I think these three paragraphs really sort of encapsulate um, for me, I think maybe the the most resonant theme of your book. Um, so thank you for agreeing to read.
1: Thanks, Brady. When I first started writing about climate change, David Gutzler, who's a climate scientist, said not to worry for the planet itself. It's humans who will suffer, he said. The Earth will remain. Species will blink out, evolve, or emerge. Ecosystems will shift. The same geological processes that have been churning the Earth for eons will still shape tomorrow's landscapes. The selfish grief I felt over losing my father, and any chance he and I had for understanding one another or reconciling our differences and disagreements had dissipated. In its place, a fiercer love has emerged for my daughter and my mother, my brother and his family, dear friends and ready allies, for the world we still have. Looking back, I realized that I twisted nostalgia and hope into inaction and despair, Perhaps healing requires grief and mourning, but both those emotions seem like indulgences and there is no time for that. So instead, I wonder about the coming world, which trees will grow, which birds will have survived, the meaning of shifting cloud formations. I wonder what the world will smell like, because now, even though it's been decades since I stopped looking for that gateway in earnest, the door to that new world has opened and there's no going back.
2: All right. Thank you, Laura. And thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be interviewed. Um, I really think folks should check out this book for all sorts of reasons, uh, whether you're interested in New Mexico, uh, climate change more broadly. Um, I think there's there's a lot to learn. And um, unlike a lot of the academics I deal with, uh, you have <laughs> traveled all over the world and talked to all sorts of people um, and considered all sorts of perspectives from scientists to you know, indigenous activists, um, to farmers and everybody in between. Um, So this is, uh, I think these lessons are, are well earned. So thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Brady. I really, really liked our conversation. Thank you. That was my
2: guest, Laura Paskus, reading from At the Precipice, New Mexico's Changing Climate, published by University of New Mexico Press. The book is available now online and in bookstores across the country. Thank you to Laura and to you, the listener, for joining me today. This concludes another episode of the New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Until next time.